Hi, hello and welcome. This is the Zonecast, where we interview emerging Canadian professionals, entrepreneurs and academics. And today we have with us on the show, uh, April Dunford. She is a serial entrepreneur, uh, an author, and also a product positioning expert. Uh, hi, April. How are you? Welcome to the show. I'm good. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, perfect. I'm excited for this uh, particular interview. Um, can you start by talking about your professional and personal background? Uh, sure. So my background is um, I uh, went to the University of Waterloo and I did systems design engineering. Um, but when I graduated, I ended up working at a little startup in Waterloo called Wacom, which went on to be acquired eventually by a big company in the Valley called Sybase. And in through that acquisition, I somehow ended up running a marketing team. And uh, and I decided marketing was my jam after that. So I then spent the next 20, 25 years leading marketing teams at a series of startups, uh, seven of them, I guess. And uh, most of those were acquired. And so through acquisition, I ended up running big marketing teams at places like IBM. Um, and in the last four or five years, I've transitioned to being a consultant and in particular, I focus on positioning work, and I work mainly with um, small tech companies. All right. Uh, so from your previous um, uh, talk, I gathered that you have uh, been involved in the launch of uh, 15 different products or so. Uh, yeah. So can you walk us through the journey and share some uh, interesting highlights? Yeah, sure. So most of the companies that I worked for, we were fairly early stage. Like I was never the first marketing hire, but I was generally the first uh, senior marketing hire. And so typically I would come in and we'd have a product that was either not quite in market or in market a little bit, but uh, had never actually properly been launched, what I would call a launch. And so that that became my thing for a while was product launches. So um, in my definition of a product launch is you need to do a bunch of things before the launch to get people excited about what it is you're about to launch. And then you launch <laughs> and then you have a whole bunch of things that happen after the launch. So in my idea of a launch, it's the thing that usually takes more than a year <laughs> and you're kind of introducing the product into market. So yeah, I've done that 15 times, I think I added them up. Most of them were small companies, but I launched a lot of things at big companies too. Um, a couple of times I did brand new products at big companies, which is kind of rare. Usually at big companies, you're doing a point release or some you know new version of a thing that's been around forever. But I launched two brand new products when I was at IBM um, and did a bunch of product launches when I was at bigger companies like Nortel and stuff as well. Mm -hmm. So th those products, were they in the sphere of uh, B2B SaaS software? Yeah, some of it some of it was SaaS and most of it wasn't. I mean, um, the at the beginning of my career, there was no SaaS. So we were all doing on-prem software back then. Um, and then I spent quite a bit of time in the middleware space uh, working with databases were kind of my thing for a while. So I worked on a lot of different database products that were not SaaS products specifically. 
Um, but yeah, then the last few products were the last few were SaaS because everything is SaaS now. Certainly, mm-hmm. the companies I work with as a consultant are almost exclusively SaaS, um, just is, because is that's there, just how we do software now. <laughs> is is that your in, industry niche or special uh, specialization? Well, yeah, I will say that my background is very B2B. Um, I've never worked on any consumer products, so I don't, I don't, you know, I both, uh, it's two things. One, I don't understand consumer products, and in particular consumer software. I don't feel like I understand it. And I also don't like it, <laughs> if I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> I've had consumer products uh, over over the years. Um, consumer tech companies have tried to hire me, and I and I end up saying no. Um, and even as a consultant, I generally don't work with too much consumer tech. Although I do some if it's if it looks more like B two B. And what I mean by that is that um, the average value of the deal is a little bit more expensive and there are actual salespeople involved in the deal. Then it feels a bit more like B2B and then I work with them. But for the most part, I'm B2B software. I specifically work with companies that are less than 100 million revenue. That's kind of the sweet spot of where I am. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about any uh, particular product that uh, you can share with us whether it's Sprintly or any other one that you particularly um, liked working with and uh, what was the experience like? Any any success metrics you can share? Yeah, well, you know what? All the products are good products. They're all good products. <laughs> Part of being a good marketer is you have to love the thing that you're marketing. Like you got to really believe in it and think that it belongs in the market and thinks that it should be successful. So they've all been good. Um, but but definitely from a revenue perspective, some products were more successful than others. So um I worked on one of the first products I worked on. We um, it, it eventually became a big product line within uh, the company that acquired us and went on to do hundreds of millions of revenue. Um, one of the things I worked on at at IBM, um, we launched it and we did uh, 250, almost 300 million revenue in the first two years. Um, and then after that, we did some acquisitions and turned it into a whole product line. The goal was to be a billion dollars of revenue in five years. <laughs> and I left before the five year mark, but I heard that it, I heard that we, we hit the metric, but it, but it took like almost six, <laughs> but that was a big one. Um, when I was working at, um, I worked at a, a company in Toronto called Jana Systems through a really big wave of growth. So when I joined, they were uh, a little over a million revenue, not quite two million revenue. And and in the subsequent 18 months, we grew to almost 80 million revenue. So that was a real rocket ride, that one. Yeah. And then you have other products that maybe didn't grow quite so fast. <laughs> We don't talk so much about those. <laughs> well, that's why they say entrepreneurship is a risky venture. 
<laughs> it is a risky venture. Well, you know, sometimes there there's a lot of things that contribute to the successful growth of a product. Like you definitely, and a lot of those things are under your control, but some things are not. And sometimes you'll have a product that um, is is great tech and it's it uh, serves a serious purpose, but it's a little ahead of its time. And, you know, and people need to be in a particular headspace to really understand the problem that it solves. And sometimes it's just not the right time. Um, yeah. And so that's why things are risky. It doesn't it's not always a rocket to the moon. Mm -hmm. So uh, is, it, is there a lot of difference in um, pitching and promoting and marketing B2B software versus B2C software? Is there a lot of uh, difference between the two? Well, yeah, like in my opinion, there is, but I don't know. So that's why I don't do B2C. <laughs> So yeah, I don't, yeah, I assume there's a lot of things that are different. You know, it's funny, like, so, you know, I, I wrote this book on positioning and, uh, and the book is written very specifically with B2B products in mind, because that's my background. That's what I do. And so I kind of state that at the beginning of the book, you should be, you should be aware that my, my background here is very B2B. So if you're B2C, maybe you don't want to take this advice to heart, <laughs> Maybe it's bad. Now, I have had people come to me and say, you know, we're B2C and we used your methodology and we think it works. And that makes me feel good. But I think as marketers and even business people in general, I think it's important to understand what you know and what you don't know. And because I've never worked in B2C, I don't have opinions about how B2C marketing works because I don't think I know anything about that. Well, uh, it's definitely uh, interesting and amazing that you definitely understand your strengths, but you also understand your weakness or maybe... It's, maybe it's, just, a, it's just a blank page over there. <laughs> it's not even a weakness. It's just it doesn't you know, exist. Like, <laughs> I don't even know. Like, this is the thing about B2C. Like, I don't even know what I don't know. I don't, I don't even <laughs> want to know it. <laughs> I'm like, I'm good over here in B2B land. I will tell you this, like... I used to tell people like, you know, you work in startups and uh, people will come and pitch me their product and then they'll say, is this good or not? And and I always, my response to that is always, well, you shouldn't be asking me that because if I'm not, you know, your target buyer, then my opinion kind of doesn't matter. But I used to always warn startups if they were consumer tech, I used to say, look, like before you even pitch me, here's what's going to happen. You're going to pitch me your thing. And I'm going to tell you how you're never going to make money on that. And you could take the exact same product and sell it to businesses and actually make money. <laughs> and I would warn them and I would say, look, and that's probably terrible advice. <laughs> so please ignore it. <laughs> but that's exactly what I'm going to do. And then they would pitch me their product. And then I'd say, oh, that sounds so interesting. Now, here's how you would actually make money. So um, I remember... Um, having a big argument with somebody about Google Glass at one point that we were talking about smart glasses. And this was in the early days of Google Glass. And they were like, oh, 
it's so amazing. You know, we're all going to be wearing these glasses and gosh, Google, they're so genius. They came out with this thing and everybody's going to have one. It's going to be like the new cell phone and we're all going to have one. And I just kept saying, why wouldn't you sell that to manufacturing plants, right? In cases where you need a heads up display. And so we just do it for manufacturing. I keep my hands free and I can do stuff with my hands, but I've got this display and I can activate it with my voice. And then I could sell one of those things for $10,000 instead of I'm going to have to sell thousands of them for a hundred (laughs) bucks. And I'm going to have to convince you it isn't creepy and they look terrible and all the other stuff. Like, why wouldn't I just sell it to manufacturing? And um, and apparently that's where they do sell Google Glass right now, I hear. <laughs> that's uh, that's pretty interesting. So, but that's but that's the difference between B two C people and B two B people. B two C people say, "Gosh, it's so much easier to sell thousands of something if it only costs a buck." Whereas B two B people, we say, "Cool, well, why wouldn't you just sell one and charge a million bucks for it and be done with it?" <laughs> and the B two B two C people say, "Yeah, but doing a million dollar deal that sounds so hard and it takes so long and whatever." And and I have the same opinion where I'm like, "Yeah, but selling thousands and thousands of a thing that sounds hard and it sounds like it would take a long time and whatever." And so it just depends on your background. Hmm. So I definitely want to talk about uh, product positioning. Uh, So you've worked with multiple ventures and been involved with the launch of multiple products. Uh, Can you share some, can you walk us through the process of product positioning, what to do, how it works, and some uh, good tips on how to do it better? Yeah, so... The thing about positioning is it's a misunderstood concept. So uh, even amongst marketers, and positioning is a really foundational marketing concept, but even around, even if I got a group of marketers together and said, hey, define positioning, I'd probably get a bunch of really different answers. And so in my opinion, so, so I define po- positioning this way. Positioning defines how your product is the best in the world at providing some kind of value that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. Now that's a little complicated and it's complicated because positioning itself is made up of a a set of piece parts. I mean, positioning defines who my true competition is. Um, It defines what features I have that are unique when compared to that competition. It defines what my value is for customers, what I can enable customers to do. Um, It also defines who these target customers are. So what is my ideal customer profile? And then lastly, positioning defines what market I intend to win. So what is the market I position myself in? So I break positioning down into those five components. And then in the work that I do with companies, I help them work through the best possible answer for each of those components for their product um, using my own methodology. So I, I mentioned I have a book and the book outlines the methodology, but even in the work that I do um, one-on-one with companies, um, we're working through 
who's your competition? Therefore, what makes you different? Therefore, what is your value? Therefore, who cares a lot about that value? And therefore is your, your ideal customers. And then what is the best context to position your product in that makes that value obvious to those folks? And so my methodology is all around that. There's a handful of ways that people mess it up, <laughs> like, like <laughs> positioning in general. Um, for the most part, most companies, I think, don't deliberately position their products. So, um, and what I mean by that is they come up with an idea for a product and it just is what it is. Like they say, you know what? I wish we had better email. So they, they set about building better email or they say, I wish we had a better CRM or a better database. And, but what happens is you start out to build better email, let's say, and then you add things, you take things away. And then at the same time, the market is changing and, competitors are moving in and out and new forms of communication are popping up and fast forward five years and maybe your product has started to look a lot like chat or it looks a lot like team collaboration and but you don't think about it that way you think about it as email because that's how you've always thought about it and so in the work I do working with clients, a lot of times what I see is they're positioning their product in a certain way and they're a little bit stuck in the past, both in terms of what their product can do, but also in terms of what the market landscape looks like. And often we can take the same product, position it in a different market category, and all of a sudden it, it feels different. The assumptions around it are different and it makes it a lot easier to understand what it is and to sell it. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, that's pretty interesting. Um, you, you mentioned that there are some ways people get it wrong or, you know, some mistakes, some errors they might make in the process. Uh, can you talk more about that and what kind of mistakes companies are making in, in their product positioning? Yeah, there's a, there's a few common ones I see. Like probably the most common one is, you know, beyond not deliberately positioning in the first place. That's the most common one for sure. The second one is um, they, they have a poor understanding of what the true competitive alternative is to their solution. So um, I get this a lot where people will come and say, you know, I'll say, well, who do you compete with? And they'll say, oh, we compete with, and they'll give me a list of a bunch of little companies that nobody's ever heard of. And sometimes I think uh, startups in particular get these companies on their radar because they're trying to raise money. And so they're looking for what are the other solutions in the market that do what we do? And they find these other companies. Um, but often if I were to go to a customer and say, have you ever heard of all these other little companies? The customer would say no. <laughs> and in fact, a lot of the times when I say, look, what would a customer do if your product didn't exist? And the answer is usually really different. They'll say, oh, well, you know, maybe they'd use a spreadsheet or they might hire an intern to do it. And most of the time in B2B software, you know, we might think we're competing with other software platforms, but our biggest competition is the status quo. And the status quo is we're going to, we're going to hire an intern to do this stuff. So the reason this is important is because you're, 
if you're selling, um, you need to really understand who you're comparing yourself against before you can figure out why it is you, you're better. <laughs> so if you come to me and say, and I get this a lot, where a little startup will say, yeah, well, we compete with, you know, they'll list some companies and they'll say, well, we're better than them because ease of use, man. Like the other the other guys, you got to do 15 clicks to get something done. And mine, you only have to do one click or two clicks. And therefore, we're easy to use. So ease of use is our big thing. But then you look at who the real competitor is and it's an intern and you're like, well, if you're really trying to displace the intern and you're coming to talk to a company about why they should stop using the intern to do this, why they should use your thing, do you think they're going to pick your thing because you're easier to use? No, no, nothing's easier to use than the intern. The intern is super easy to use. I'm really like... like the interns got you on that one but there's lots of things that your software can do that the intern doesn't like the intern makes mistakes the intern doesn't type stuff in right the intern has a sick day and doesn't come in the intern quits on you (laughs) the intern can't save a company profile and know what they ordered last week and everything else so um really understanding who the competitive comparable is is really important to understand what your differentiation is and therefore what your value is. Yeah, those are some uh, great insights. Um, As you mentioned, you have launched a book uh, about uh, product positioning. So can you tell us more about this book and uh, uh, what's the the thesis of this book? What kind of, uh, what led you to this book? And... uh, What's in it? Yeah. So, um, so the idea for this book was born a long time ago. But basically, when I started in marketing, you know, I mentioned I was an engineering graduate, so I didn't study marketing in school. But I got this job in marketing, and then I decided, well, I'm a marketer now. I should learn something about marketing. <laughs> so I read a bunch of books. And I took a lot of courses um, at different places. And one of the concepts that comes up pretty early in your marketing journey is this concept of positioning. And so um, when you learn about positioning, um, you're forced to read this book called Positioning the Battle for Your Mind by these guys, Rees and Trout. It was written in 1982, so before the internet. Uh, And this is still considered the kind of seminal work on positioning they invented the term positioning and they wrote this book and it sold a lot of copies and even now if you go to marketing school that's the book you're going to read the problem with this book at least for me was i read the book i got very excited about the concept of positioning um it really opened my eyes to okay here's what it is what it didn't do is it didn't tell me how to do it So after I read the book, I'm I'm all excited. I'm like, okay, I've got this product and I think the positioning is bad. So I'd like to reposition it. Now what do I do? And there was nothing in the book that gave me a methodology to do it. Like step one, what do I do? I don't know. I don't know what to do. Now, the part of the reason was because those guys were consultants. And so you were supposed to hire them and they were going to do it for you. (laughs) Now, at one point I called them and they're very expensive, as you might imagine, So for me at a startup, that was not practical. I couldn't hire those guys because they were working with giant companies like Pepsi. (laughs) So, So I decided, well, there must be a methodology for doing this. This is a really foundational marketing concept. And it turned out there isn't one. 
And that just kind of blew my mind. So, um, so eventually I came up with my own methodology for positioning. And in fact, I would say most good senior marketing people, it's not that we're not doing positioning. We are doing it. We just don't have an accepted standard methodology. So most good senior marketing people are getting positioning done, uh, but they're all doing it in slightly different ways. And so I eventually, you know, came up with my own way of doing positioning. And then through the course of doing product launch after product launch after product launch, I refined it and it got better. And then at some point I got asked to teach a course at a university on positioning. And so I went and did that. And so that forced me to get a little bit clearer on how I explained it. And then that turned into, um, I started teaching a regular sort of positioning workshop or a class with some of the local startup accelerators. So I've done it with Communitech and um, Ryerson DMZ and um, Techstars and whatever. So th that also gave me some clarity. And then when I switched to doing consulting, I started teaching people my methodology and working with companies as a way to do that. So the book is, in essence, um, the book that I wish I had <laughs> at the beginning of my journey when I was asking the question, how do I actually do this? Um, my book is an attempt to answer that question. So what it is is the companion book to Reason Trout's work, which is, okay, you, you believe in positioning, you get positioning, but you don't know how to do it. My book gives you a methodology for doing that. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty interesting. Uh, so this workshop that you have delivered in the past is like a one day or two day condensed workshop on uh, product positioning. How does it work? Yeah, so the way I work with companies um, is, um, well, you know, so if startups come to me and, and they have a positioning problem, well, what I used to do before COVID <laughs> is that I would, <laughs> I would go on site and we would do a, a two-day positioning workshop. And in that workshop, we would work through using my methodology. We'd get the entire executive team together and we would work through the component pieces of positioning, um, figure out what the positioning is, and then we would take that positioning and um, translate it into a sales narrative for the product, which would which would essentially give you a way to test the positioning. So that's what I was doing pre-COVID. Now that we don't go visit people in the office anymore, I'm doing them virtually. So um, the companies I work with now, we, again, get the executive team together and we do it over a series of Zoom calls, which isn't, isn't ideal, but it actually works pretty good. It works better than I thought. I, I like... I laugh because I, I remember having conversations with people before we went into lockdown about, you know, occasionally I would get a call from a company in Australia or someplace that was too far away for me to actually go and do a workshop. And they'd say, oh, well, do you do the workshop virtually? And I used to say, well, I don't, you know, I don't know if it really works virtually because it's kind of a facilitated conversation. And I think it's hard to facilitate over, um, a video conference. <laughs> but then, you know, a few weeks later, we went into lockdown and I had a company call me and say, well, can we do this virtual? And I was like, yeah, I guess we're going to try. <laughs> so 
I, uh, I, I, so since then I've done, I think I've probably done seven or eight workshops now, maybe 10 actually virtually. Um, and, uh, and they work pretty good. So I'm surprised I was a skeptic myself, but I actually think that even when we do go back to working in the office, I'm still going to do these virtually because I think they work pretty good and it's, it's more economical for everybody. They don't have to pay to fly me around. Yeah, I guess I guess there is that benefit of you being able to work from your own uh, home office and uh, being able to train virtually. I think I think I think in, through this pandemic, we have we have found a way to make things work virtually. Previously, you know, yeah. people, companies who thought you know virtual is not going to work, and then they just had to adapt because they didn't have a choice, and then they realized. Oh, it does work and uh, it has yeah. its own benefits. It's been great that way, actually. Like, certainly my work's like that. Like, it, it forced me to do it, but it also forced my clients to try it too. Like, and now that we've all done it virtually, we're kind of like, oh, well, this wasn't so bad. I don't know why we weren't doing this like this before. <laughs> but that's, there's some that's... things that are different. Like, I will say... Um, Generally, I've got a group that's the that's you know the exec team. So I need head of sales, head of marketing, head of customer success, the founder slash CEO, uh, and sometimes we'll have a couple other people in the room. And when I was doing them face to face, I didn't really care how many people were in the room. Like it, it was pretty common for me to have a dozen people in the room, um, and it's because I trusted my own ability to keep the conversation moving and to get us to an agreement and to essentially be able to facilitate the exercise. It is more difficult on Zoom, um, especially if the group gets bigger. So, um, you know, the biggest group I've done virtually so far has been 10 people. And it took us a little bit longer to get consensus on things because I think we're just a little bit slower in a group conversation, um, it's a little bit slower to have everyone be heard and then to get a consensus on it. But we still get there. It just takes us a little bit more time. Mm -hmm. That's uh, pretty interesting. So I was watching one of your um, uh, clips earlier, and you mentioned that uh, you uh, one of the ventures uh, that you were working on was uh, a venture that your colleague or co-founder had had previously sold and then it was uh, reacquired so you guys can work on it um if, yeah if that I, was a long time ago that's sprintly that's sprintly yeah <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm curious like uh buying back your own venture that's uh not very that's not a very common thing to happen and what oh, was that? Yeah, you should get you should get Joe Stump on your on your podcast. He's such a great guy. So this was Joe's company, and he had originally founded it and raised some money and grew it, and then at, and then at some point it it got acquired, and um and so the new company had it, and Joe went on to do a, another startup. I think he did two or three startups after that one, um and then at some point he uh he and I got talking at a conference and we were both speaking at a conference and we got talking in the, in the bar after the conference, drinking beer. And, uh, 
And Joe was like, I'm kind of thinking about buying back this company, this product that I sold, because I know the people that bought it aren't doing anything with it. And I still think it's a good product. And and he said, you know, I got the tech side of it, but I'm kind of looking for somebody that to, to run the marketing sales side of it. So we went in together and we acquired it from the people that owned it. And then he and I ran it for a couple of years. Um, and then it eventually got sold to, um, it, was, it was a bit of a, a complicated process, but it eventually got sold to a customer. So a customer bought it and <laughs> is now running it um, as a product. Yeah. So so that was a fun little adventure. It was it was it was a, it was a little a fun little side project, but for me for a while while I was consulting is to run this little software company. The idea was never that it was a growth business. The idea was that it was a profitable software business that we could essentially run for profit, and it had an existing customer base that loved it. And the idea was to just keep the existing customer base happy and make some money doing that. And we did, and it was kind of fun. <laughs> so when he had to like acquire the company that he sold, did he, uh, I mean, did, did he have to pay like a price higher than what he received when he sold it? Or, or did he get it at a discounted price because they were not doing much with it or? Yeah, the- I mean, I don't know the exact terms of his deal when he sold it, but I I do think we got a pretty good deal on it when we bought it, but otherwise we wouldn't have purchased it. <laughs> <laughs> but you, this is Joe's story to tell, not mine. So you should have him on here to have this conversation. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess he would make an interesting guest for the show. <laughs> so now that you have your own book and your own methodology, um, I'm I'm curious to know what you think about this book, the Lean Startup, and the Lean Startup methodology. Um, I'm, Is there a methodology though? I'm, <laughs> <laughs> what I'm what I'm curious is like, have you read the book? I a little bit about what I think about that. You know what? I you know. Um, have you read the book and what do you think about it? What's that? Sorry. Yeah. So have you read that book and what do you think about it? Oh, yeah, everybody's read that book. Um, yeah, so yes. Um, I will tell you that um, that book draws pretty heavily on Steve Blank's work. And Steve Blank's work was very influential to me. So um, so Steve Blank wrote a book called Four Steps to the Epiphany, and um, which I read early in my career. And I, I still recommend it to people all the time. It is an amazing, amazing, amazing piece of work. And in particular, his thinking around how to do customer discovery, I thought was excellent and really changed the way I thought about um, even how to do customer interviews. It really, it really influenced my thinking on that stuff a lot. Um, so having been a big fan of Four Steps to the Epiphany, um, when I read Lean Startup, I was a little, I'll be honest with you, disappointed um, because I, it felt like a watered down version of Steve Blank's concepts. Like, and he, he references Steve Blank in his book and he draws heavily, heavily on Steve's work. Um, and so, you know, I didn't think there was a lot of meat on that bone when I read it. <laughs> so, 
as opposed to it was like it was kind of like making the consumable version of Four Steps to the Epiphany because Four Steps to the Epiphany is a hard read. Like that book was never going to be a bestseller. Like it was very hard to read. Um, and it was conceived as a textbook for Steve's course on entrepreneurship that he was running at Stanford at the time. And so I felt like what, what Lean Startup did was it took Steve's ideas and it made them consumable to a group of people that would never have suffered through that book. <laughs> so, and so I think Lean Startup is kind of cool that way. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of things in Lean Startup that, that kind of bugged me. Like, um, it, you know, I've, I found it really problematic that the concept of a market did not exist in that book where, and that was absolutely not true of four steps of the epiphany. I mean, I think Steve Blank thought a lot about markets and how markets work. Um, in general, I felt like as a marketer reading lean startup, I was a bit like, you know, you guys are missing a lot of stuff here. You know, you could be following that lean startup stuff perfectly and still not really understand segmentation and what segment to go after and would really have a hard time growing a business beyond MVP without understanding those concepts. But again, as perhaps beyond the scope of that book, totally beyond the scope of that book, I guess. So I don't know. So I read it and I thought, yeah, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Now, obviously, I'm I'm in a minority there because that book sold eight million bajillion facillion copies. Um, but people that come to me and say, "What book should I read?" Um, I tell them to go read Four Steps to the Epiphany, and then I tell them, "Look, it's going to be terrible. You're going to hate reading it. It's going to be <laughs> this is not a fun book to read. Um, but you're going to be super super smart if you slog your way through it." Yeah, I I I I did read that book. I didn't finish it but <laughs> that's most people it took me three tries to get through it but my and I, that was with a friend of mine really bugged me so my friend recommended it and and just just like this too he said look you have to read this book you're going to hate it it's going to take you a long time to get through it it's really meaty it's dense it's a textbook you're going to hate it but he says you have to suffer through it and i picked it up like first time I picked it up, I got maybe 30 pages into it. And I was like, I can't. And then I saw my friend again. And he said, did you read that book? And I said, Oh, dude, I can't like, <laughs> and he said, and he said, No, I'm going to bug you every time I see you until you read it. And then the second time I got about halfway through it. Um, and I just, you know, it just took me a long time to get halfway. And then I put it down. And then I picked it up the third time and read it. And I've maybe since then read that book about five times <laughs> because Ooh. it's so dense and there's so much in there. And every time I read it, I see something else that I didn't see before. It's just, in my opinion, is a real genius piece of work. Mm, that's, that's interesting. By the time I had decided to read that book, it had become pretty popular. And if you went to these like entrepreneurship or startup events, yeah, you hear, People mention it, and no, it was as if nobody's actually read it. <laughs> you, would, you would hear people mention it, and it was as if it was kind of cool to mention it as part of your talk. 
Oh, have you read this book? Oh, you do yeah, you know yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like mentioning War and Peace. Like you know, it's a book, and you know that's what it's called. But most people can't make it through it because it's so hard. <laughs> so like I, I'd heard it so many times, and I, I, I guess I had some really high, high expectations. And then when I actually read it, I didn't think it met those uh, expectations. Hmm. But, but somehow it's some. I think many many people got to get through like, it, man. You can't stop at page thirty. Because I was I was like you. I I the first time I went to read it, I was like, I don't get why everybody's so hep on this thing, and I and it's terrible, right? It's full of spelling mistakes and grammar. Like he self published it at a time when nobody self published. Like it's just a hard <laughs> book. So I so I read it and I was like, oh man, this is terrible. And then but my friend bugged me. He's like, no no, you you just you haven't got far enough. You haven't got far enough. Keep going. <laughs> like I guess maybe the second half of that book is is more interesting. Is is that how it works? Mm, I don't I don't know. All I can say is uh you know the 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 first 30 40 pages ain't it. <laughs> <laughs> but for me the piece on customer discovery was really that was that was the piece that you know, maybe because you've heard of customer discovery before because you because you read Eric Reese's book. Um, but for me, that was my first introduction to the concept of customer discovery. And I was like, oh, we don't do this. Like, we don't do anything like this. Like, that's actually really smart. And there there's like a bunch of things in that book. You, I, I'm surprised at how frequent I come back to the concepts in that book. Like, um the other day I was talking to a company and we were talking about pricing and Steve Blank has a really great example in that book about how do you price a product. And so he talks about doing customer discovery for pricing is how he calls it. And so he's, he talks about going in and having a customer discovery conversation about here's a product and, you know, we're thinking about making this. And then trying to gauge whether the person is interested in it. The person says, you know, so you'd ask the question like, hey, if a product like that existed, would you buy it? And a lot of times people will say yes, but that doesn't mean they'd really buy it, right? Like you've got to get into like, how much would you pay? So Steve's thing was he'd say, well, you know, would you, would you pay money for it? And if people said yes then how he would figure out what, what a reasonable price to charge for it was is he would pick a number that was obscenely high <laughs> with the idea that then they would give you the real number. But if you, if you came in with the number, if you'd say, hey, would you pay 10 bucks? And the person says, yes. Well, you don't know if they pay 100 bucks. <laughs> now that you said 10, you price fixed them and they, they think it's worth 10. So he would go in and say, would you pay a million dollars for this? And the, and the person would say, what? No. And he's like, you want people to be pissed off with the number. So you want them to say, what? No, I would couldn't possibly pay a million. And you say, well, how much would you pay? And you'll get the maximum number because you set them already high. <laughs> so it's like this little trick. So I did this once at, at when I was at IBM, we had a product we were launching and we were having a fight about what we were going to charge about it, like a, like an internal disagreement on the team about how much this product was worth. And so the folks on my team were scared to charge. They didn't think it was a very good product was kind of the problem. And they said, well, we can't charge more than 200,000. That was what we were going to charge for this thing. $200,000 It's enterprise software. So you know, for IBM, that was cheap. So we're like $200,000. And I said, oh man, I think we're selling it short. 
I think we can charge 400,000. So my team was 200,000. I was 400,000. So we had to break the tie somehow. And so we had a bunch of customers in our beta that had already been using the product that didn't know what it was going to cost. So I went in and did this, this test with the Steve Blank test on all of them. And so there was about a dozen customers and I went in and said, Hey, so we got this, we're working on the pricing for this thing. So I'm just curious on your feedback on the pricing. And I said, I we're thinking about charging a million bucks. <laughs> and the customers all went, what It is not worth a million dollars. And I'd say, well, how much is it worth? And the first guy, I said, we're thinking about charging a million bucks. And he says, Ooh, that seems kind of expensive. And I said, yeah, maybe it is. Like, what, what would you pay for it? And the first guy said, like, I don't know, man. I don't think I'd spend more than 700 on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess the number was. That was my first guy. And the <laughs> second, and, and anyways, I did it across the dozen people. And the average was like, my average was over half a million. So I came back and said, well, we're going with 400,000 because you get 250 is too small. <laughs> but anyways, that was that was a tidbit I learned out of four steps of the epiphany. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. Uh, well, April, it has been very nice speaking with you and learning about your background and your expertise. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. And uh, how can people uh, reach out to you? Uh, so, you know, my website is aprildunford.com. You can go there and you can find out about the book or, and you know, if you're looking for a consultant, you can find me there. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. It's the only place where I'm active, which is at April Dunford. Or you can drop me an email, which is april at aprildunford.com. Perfect. Uh, listeners, uh, I hope you enjoyed this uh, particular episode and you find this uh, interview to be insightful and you are able to learn from the tips and experience. And thank you so much for listening to Zoomcast and stay tuned for more episodes.